Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being with us. If you will open your Bibles to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In just a moment, uh, we'll read our text for tonight. And we will uh, conclude a lesson that we began last Sunday morning. Uh, We'll quickly review some of the things that we covered there and uh, go right into the second part of the lesson. It makes a good natural break into a first part and a second part. Uh, We're glad to see uh, those of you that have been skiing this weekend return. Uh, We appreciate the Perrys uh, so much for their uh, organizing uh, such a big weekend trip. Uh, Most of us here couldn't imagine putting together a ski trip where 83 people went and skied and taking care of the lodging. Over 20 of those people had never skied before. And so uh, there's many of us parents here that appreciate uh, them and, and their uh, many hours of sacrifice before the trip and then definitely while they were there. And many of you adults, uh, Phil and so many others that went and made sure that the weekend was a safe weekend. And we appreciate you a whole bunch. I've been warned that if everyone begins to perk up and look real interested in the sermon tonight, it's because they've put the Super Bowl on the screen overhead. So I just want you to know I've got the inside scoop And so if you act real interested, I'll know what is happening. Uh, But we will uh, study an important lesson and and try to do so in a timely manner. And it is good that each are here this evening. Well, he finally finished it. That is, John O'Groats. You see, he wanted to walk across Britain. And finally, last week, he did that. Now, it took quite a bit longer than what he expected because he was arrested 16 times and spent over five months in jail along the way. The reason he was arrested, because the only thing he wore on his hike across Great Britain was a pair of hiking boots and, of course, his backpack since he was hiking. When he finished that, he celebrated with his champagne in hand and was questioned why he would do something. And he proclaimed that it was time for public nudity to be accepted. And he hoped that his actions would contribute strongly to that across the world. Now you can say ridiculous. You can say he should never have done that. The point is, there are more and more people in the world that are believing that today. And they will argue with you that they have every right to believe that and to practice it and no one should stop them from doing it. Why is it that someone like that would have a moral compass that's so different than perhaps many, if not all, here tonight? You see, in this lesson, one of the primary goals in this lesson is for all of us to clearly understand that if we have a deep, a devoted faith in God, it changes everything about us and our morality. If you kind of label yourself as someone that, well, I've kind of got loose morals. I'm not quite as uptight as other Christians I know. It might not be simply because you have loose morals. That may be the result of the fact that you don't have a close relationship with the Lord. Because God only sets one standard of morality, and those that line up with God do just that. Line up with God. And those that don't do just that. They don't line up with God. Now, in the beginning of the lesson last week, and we'll just quickly note it by way of review to emphasize this, the Barna Research Group gave us some studies, and this is just a few months old, and I didn't mention this last Sunday morning, but just another point of interest. Many of these 
where all of the adults that were surveyed, many of these have gone up just in the last two years. These are the percentage of people, of adults in America, that believe that these immoral practices are morally acceptable. And many of these have gone up just in the last two years. The point that we want to note, just to make the point for emphasis, as you see the four columns, the second column over is the evangelicals. We probably would fall in this survey under that belief because this includes the people that believes that their faith in Jesus Christ affects the way they live every day of the week. Now you'll see the third column over is born again. And those that fall under this category are those that believe that they are, in fact, born again into the Lord. They worship, many of them, every Sunday, but yet they do not believe that what they practice on Sunday and their belief in Jesus Christ should affect what they do any other day of the week. And then we see the fourth column is made up of atheists and agnostic. And we see that they score in the highest. The point of this is not that do you want to debate this, etc. The point is, when we look at the average uh, of, of, of Americans, when we look at a survey of Americans and we say, why the difference? In other words, if the first study, or if the only study was just the first column, we'd say, well, look what is being accepted in America today. But when we see these other columns, we know why the difference in either the accepting or the rejecting. The difference is relationship in God. That is the greatest measurable difference is their relationship with God. Why? Because it's God who gives us that moral standard. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 17. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And we will mention some of this quickly because it's reviewing things, and then we're going to slow down on the last half of this uh, passage here. Ephesians 4 17. Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk. And that's talking about behavior daily. You should no longer walk or conduct yourself as the rest of the Gentiles. And the word Gentile there is heathens. So he points to the way the heathens live their life immorally. And he says, You should no, no longer walk like that. And he says, In the futility of their mind. Now, we noted last week that futility of the mind is not just the same word as saying the vanity or the emptiness of the mind. If you do a word study here, it literally goes back to depravity, to being morally bankrupt. And so we say, why do heathens do immoral things? It's because their mind is set upon immoral things. They do not have that inward compass. They don't have that knowledge. They don't have that conviction that we should have if we're going to be child of God, children of God. And so now look... We pointed out this last week, and, and we were ending on this last one as we go into 18 and 19. Notice this spiral downward in 18 and 19. Number one, he says in 17 at the end, because of their feudal minds, now going to 18, number one, having their understanding darkness, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Number four, verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. The first thing is that dimness of sight of morality. Understanding is darkened, where someone literally convinces themselves, you know, I used to always think that was wrong, but now I don't really know if it's wrong anymore. What is that? 
That's that dimness. Well, what happens is that dimness takes place in an individual's life. Paul says they begin to alienate themselves. And this is interesting to me. He could have said, you're alienating yourself from God, but he doesn't say that. He could have said, you're alienating yourself from other Christians. He doesn't say that. Although both of those are true. Here he says, you're alienating yourself from the life of God. I need to recognize that I'm literally alienating myself from what I ought to be. I cannot stand for immorality and stand in oneness with God. In other words, the life of God that I ought to be living, I am separating myself from that. And how many times have we seen individuals that along this way, as their darkness, as their understanding is dimmed, they begin to say things like, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with church anymore. You know, I don't feel comfortable running with Christians anymore. What's the problem? We're alienating ourselves from the life of God. We start to do some things that are good and righteous, and we honestly can say to ourselves, you know, I used to feel good about doing these things, and I don't feel good about doing this anymore. Why? We're alienating ourselves from the life of God. And then eventually, we become ignorant. We literally reach the point where we say, you know, I don't know if it's right or wrong anymore. I used to believe with all my heart it was right. Now I'm indifferent about it. I used to believe with all my heart it's wrong, and now I really am starting to think it's right. And then we move to another mode, and that is we become past feeling. In other words, we're morally calloused. We read a passage last week in the old Bible as we studied this point of how they no longer could blush. They did things that were wrong, but not only did they not blush, they could no longer blush. They were past feeling. And then, here's where we got to. At that point, lewdness takes over. Lewdness is lawlessness and badness. In other words, we start to accept in our life that lawlessness is fine. Notice as we look at the end of verse 19, well, the middle of 19, he says, having given themselves over. Notice that having given themselves over to lewdness. In other words, I'm not fighting this anymore. I used to feel guilty about it. I used to try to defend myself. But now, I don't care. That's who I am. You have to love me for who I am. I'm not going to change for anybody. I practice the evil. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't have feelings of guilt anymore. You need to accept me. And on and on the argument is. But not only does the argument stay with just the one practicing it, But all of a sudden, it's almost as if it becomes an addiction. Look at the last part of verse 19. Giving themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanliness with greediness. So now the idea is, this person is ready to do anything that's wicked, anything that's immoral, and literally has a drive to do it. In other words, it's not, well, I guess I'll do that. It's, I want to do that. What else can I do? How many times have we seen individuals that maybe somewhere in their 20s or somewhere in their 30s, they turn over a leaf and it's not a good new leaf. And it just seems like everything they ever believed has just gone out the window and now they literally are looking for evil to do. How did that take place? We just read it. It takes place because the mind becomes futile. And you say, how's the mind become futile? He just worked his way all the way down. Now... What's the answer to that? Notice he's writing to individuals that he says, you don't need to walk any longer like those people that are the heathens. 
In other words, he says, you have a moral compass that's different. Well, what's going to be the standard? What's going to set that compass? Let's work through the next few verses and see that. In verse 20, he says, But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught of Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness." Notice the first thing that he says here, if we're going to have that moral conduct that that has a standard that we can base it upon and we can know what is right, it's because we learn Christ. I don't have a slide for this. We're going to go to a passage in just a moment. We do have a slide. But if you want to turn over to John, the ninth chapter, this morning as Andrew taught a Bible class that I was a part of this morning, we were studying about the blind man being healed in John, the ninth chapter. And as we were studying that, Janet Mann made a comment that I couldn't help but think of that comment as I studied back over this lesson again this afternoon. As you're turning to John 9, let me give you a little bit of introduction to this. Notice, he did not say, I want you to learn about Jesus. Now the passage we just left in Ephesians says, I want you to learn Jesus. Winston Churchill. We can say, everybody come back tomorrow night and we'll have a little study and we're going to learn about Winston Churchill. We can do that. But nobody here can walk around with him day in and day out and learn him. There's a big difference. He's dead. You can only learn the living. How many of you parents have learned your children? You know when you say something what they're going to say. How many of you parents, children have learned your parents? I know when we turn our heads, your lips keep going saying exactly what we're saying, right? Don't let us catch you doing it, but how can you do that? The reason you can do that is because you've learned us. Now think about what Paul is saying right here. He says, I want to show you the difference in someone that's moral and someone that's immoral. Someone that is immoral immoral doesn't know Jesus. Someone that is moral knows Jesus. And in John the ninth chapter, we have the man that was healed. He had been blind from his birth, but yet... Whenever this tremendous healing took place, everybody wanted to find fault with it. And as they questioned the man, he declares that it was Jesus. No one one wanted to give Jesus the credit that this was good, that it was powerful, that he was the Son of God doing this. They even put his parents on the spot. What are his parents going to say? Surely they would take up for their son, but they don't because they feared being cast out of the synagogue. And notice finally what we read in John the ninth chapter and verse 25 as they come back to the son, the man that was healed again. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This man was saying, I know one thing. I'm experiencing something because I've met this man, because I've obeyed this man that I have never experienced ever in my life. And Janet made the statement, this man experienced Jesus and no one would convince him otherwise. I wonder how many of us here tonight have intellectually learned Jesus. We can tell the story, but yet we don't feel any connection with Jesus. We haven't tried 
to live his life. We haven't tried to grow a relationship with him. Friends, I need to realize I don't need to just learn, just learn about Jesus. I need to learn Jesus. He's alive. The grave was found empty. Look with me, if you will, and we have a slide for this. We're in 1 Peter, the second chapter. 1 Peter, the second chapter, Peter would write about the living Lord and urge us to have our life so that we can be spiritually alive because we built our life upon Jesus. And he would talk about in verse 1 of 1 Peter the second chapter, laying aside all the sin. In verse 2 and 3, having a desire for the Word of God so that we can taste the Lord is gracious. And speaking about the gracious Lord, he says in verse 4 and 5, come to Him as to a, now notice this, a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Do you see what Peter's calling us to do? He's calling us to build our life upon Jesus. And he says, I want to remind you, he's not a dead stone. We're not building on a dead foundation. We're building on a living foundation. Man's rejecting him. Look at the immorality today. Am I going to choose Christ's ways or am I going to choose my carnal nature? So many people have rejected Jesus. But he says, I want to tell you something. He's precious. And God didn't reject him. God chose him. If we're smart, we're going to choose the Jesus that is precious the one that God chose. He is living. Now note what we should be in verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now when we go back to our text, and you might want to be turning over to John the 8th chapter, John the 8th chapter, and when we go back to our text, we see not only should we learn Jesus Christ, but we also read in verse 21 that we should be taught by Jesus Christ. So you see, the point that we were making a while ago was not disclaiming the fact that we need to learn about Jesus. We do. We need to learn the facts about Jesus. We need to learn the doctrine of Jesus. The truth is, that's the only way we're going to learn Jesus. But if we stop at just the facts, we've missed the greater picture. And so we think for just a moment, why is it that we should learn and be taught of Jesus? In John the 8th chapter, remember what he said in 31 and 32? Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We abide in the teaching, the Word of Jesus Christ. And we become His disciple. A disciple was one that not only followed the teaching, but also the teacher. Tonight, I need to recognize how important it is that if I am going to be moral, Christ has to be learned. His teaching has to be learned. We must become His disciple. And if so, we can know the truth, and the truth can set us free. Free to do anything we want? No. But free from the bondage that enslaves us as we choose a path of immorality. Many of you here are at least my age and older, and and you're able to identify exactly with what I'm about to say. It breaks my heart now as I see kids coming out of high school or out of college And they're participating in things that not only are wrong, but you recognize that if they stay on that track, they're going to be trapped in the bondage 
of all of the things that that addiction or that lifestyle or that behavior is going to bring. And you want to go to that person and you want to plead with them to turn away, not because it's wrong and for the moment, but you want them to have a life of freedom for the years to come. And you want to just be able to show them a picture of the future and say, look where this relationship is going to take you. Look at the addiction it's going to cause. Look at the broken hearts that it's going to cause. Look at the dreams that you're giving up. But friends, that's true for any age. It's not true for just you. If you and I want to be set free, we have to have a moral conduct that lines up with Jesus Christ. So I need to learn Jesus, and I need to learn of Jesus, be taught by Jesus. But then finally, as we look in Ephesians, we see that we also need to be dressed by Jesus. In other words, those last two verses that we read, really the last three verses, but coming out of 22 and 23 and 24, we read of what corrupts us. We need to put off the things that corrupt us. And those happen by deceitful lust. If I understood Brother Harold right this morning in his prayer, he prayed that sometimes we have stumbling blocks in our way that look like gold, but they ensnare us. What was he talking about? Deceitful temptation. Deceitful lust is when you and I long for something, believing that it's one thing, and the reality is it's another. What does that do? It causes us to grow corrupt. Corrupt means that we're no longer of use that we could be. Well, what use could we be? We could be a vessel in God's service, but yet if we're immoral, we're growing corrupt. We can't be used, therefore. So what do we need to do? We need to change clothes. We need to put off the old man of sin. But in 23 and 24, we see what we need to dress up in. We need to dress up with a new mind. And then also in 24, that means once the mind is changed, the behavior will change, so then we're a new person. We're God's person. And then finally, we have a standard there, and that's how this paragraph closes. It's going to be created according to what? The righteousness and the holiness of God. And so I can find out what is right. I can ask God. God, is this right in your sight? Is this holy, free from things that defile in your sight? That's the answer. Romans the 10th chapter, we see that just because we claim that we want to be with God does not mean that we're being honest with ourselves and therefore with God. Notice what these people were doing. Romans, the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. You've heard me say this before. It's been a while, but you've heard me say this before. I think these verses right here describe much of, of the religious attitude in America today. People are excited to talk about God. Have you noticed how many people at the workplace will talk about God? People oftentimes on television will talk about God. There's a zeal for God, now notice, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant, and remember we talked about already in this spiral down, you can be ignorant about what is right. You being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So before I say I know I'm moral because I'm excited about God, I need to always stop and say, if I'm really excited about God, if I'm zealous for God, I'm going to ask God what is right, what is righteous. Not my standard, God's standard. My compass would point the wrong direction. 
God's compass is always right. Dr. Marshall Schmeet. He is a professor of business ethics in the University of Central Florida. And he recently came out the results of a study of three things in order that determine people's ethical behavior in the workplace. Somewhat surprising. Maybe once we stop and think about it, we'll say maybe not so surprising. But it is sad. The number one factor in what people will do ethically or morally in the workplace is determined by their supervisor. Now, if you are a supervisor, you own your own company, that tells you what kind of effect you have upon other people, and you ought to use it to God's glory. So that's the good news. But the bad news is, morally and ethically, people look more to other people than they do to themselves. The second is still not themselves. What affects them the greatest ethically in the workplace is what their peers do. If their peers do it, they'll do it. If their peers won't do it, they tend to not do it. Finally, third, their own person's moral conduct, code of conduct, is what affects what they do. I, I think it's obvious, but if not, let's state the obvious. Do you realize as faithful Christians, our moral conduct should always be based upon the fact that we know Christ, we know of Christ, and we've been dressed in the mind of Christ. And so therefore, it does not matter what our boss does or does not do, we will choose Christ. It does not matter what our peers do or do not do, we will choose Christ. And it does not matter what my flesh would long to do, I would choose Christ. That has to be our goal. And if that's not the goal, we can line up with the atheist or we can line up with that column of those that claim to be born again, but it really doesn't matter. All that matters is what my boss says or what my friends say. Friends, we're living in a climate where morality is blowing, it seems, in every direction except the direction of righteousness. And you and I are going to have to decide where we'll stand and how firm we'll stand and how deeply we'll teach these convictions to our children. If we're not saying things to our children like everything's not okay, there is a difference in right and wrong. And get off this thing about it's judging. Absolutely it's judging. And God commands us to judge. He commands us to make righteous judgment. We can know if abortion is right or wrong. It's not judging the heart. It's judging an action. We can know if drunkenness is right or wrong. Yes, it's judging. It's judging an action. And God commands us to make judgments. And we must teach our children to make those judgments. Tonight... We extend an invitation. Let's not react to this invitation based upon what others do or don't do or even what maybe by fleshly nature we would do. Let's think about our relationship with God and let's make sure that we do what God would have us to do. And you say, it makes me nervous. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know either. But I know that if we line up our life with God, it's going to work out the very best that it possibly can. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to become a child of God, believing that Jesus Christ is a Son of God, and repenting, turning away, putting off that old person of sin, 
and putting on that mind of Jesus and that behavior and moral conduct, confessing before man that he is the Son of God and being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. If you have been and become a Christian already, but yet somewhere along the way, you've let things get out of order. You know that you've disappointed God and you've disappointed yourself. If you want to pray forgiveness and repent and come forward, if we can help you in any way as we stand, as we sing.